Hello, my name is Dustin McClure, and her day with Will Sloan. What's that? Godzilla's on his way. No, a boat's leaving port. Or I guess the army's coming in. Oh, Jagar. Jagar. Jack Nicholson. You're listening to our. Oh, wait, it's not our Godzilla episode. That's coming next week, folks. We're talking about the director of the first film, though, Ishiro Honda. Godzilla's father, although, like any success, Godzilla had many fathers. <laughs> That's right. Because Ishiro Honda, along with effects supervisor Aiji Tsuburaya, producer Tamayuki Tanaka, probably also, you could say, the uh, musician Akira Ifukube, mm-hmm. uh, th- they were all, you know, part of the part of the gene pool. Yeah, of the kind of fathers that birthed the original Godzilla, and a lot of them continuing to kind of foster him, even though he turned into a child they did not want. But in Godzilla lore and the Godzilla imagination, Ishiro Honda is regarded as, I guess, the the artist, the genius. Mm-hmm. The one who, when he left the series, it became sort of vulgar. But I also think that he's treated as a filmmaker that he made one film almost accidental that is now considered a masterpiece. And then in most circles, he made more films. Right. A lot of them Godzilla films, but lesser ones than the original one. He's not a filmmaker who is widely studied or understood Mm -hmm. aside from the 1954 Godzilla. And... I hoped this week that maybe we would be able to delve deep into his filmography to get a well-rounded understanding of him. And frankly, that's not all that possible, Mm -hmm. at least on this side of the Pacific. So before he made Godzilla, he made a handful of feature films, uh, the most famous ones being Eagle in the Pacific. And after Godzilla, he made all sorts of films. He made a Yakuza film. He made some musicals. He made kind of uh, Naruse-style mother and son dramas. And none of them are available. If you look at IMDb, most of them don't even have have one rating not one rating which uh was a little bit surprising when i went looking for the movies because i thought one of the most famous in the sense of like he made some of the most popular japanese films the rest of his filmography is completely forgotten and also aside from maybe hayao miyazaki mm-hmm. he is probably the most seen japanese director more so than akira kurosawa at the point that he was making godzilla films akira kurosawa was treated with respect he was the art house director, but Ishiro Honda had the biggest box office in the world of any Japanese filmmaker, and he was still treated like garbage by Toho. Yeah, but there is no corner of the earth that Ishiro Honda's movies have not played. Mm-hmm. Now, why isn't Ishiro Honda treated with much respect? Well, because he was a respectful person. That's essentially what it boils down to. If you look at any biography of Ishiro Honda, the first thing that comes to uh, light and is by that, any biography you mean the one that was written about no him. or like if you look on just like a summary or you look at a fan magazine they're going to talk about that once Godzilla became kind of a superhero Shiro Honda did not want to make those movies anymore by the time he was making King Kong versus Godzilla he was like drinking heavily because he did not want to make those movies anymore and he still had like another seven in him after that but he was a journeyman he was mm. a company man and the Japanese studio system Uh, even more so than the Hollywood studio system, uh, controlled its artists with an iron fist, told them what to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Akira Kurosawa was a more rebellious Well, he was independent as well. He made his films independently and then, like, Toho distributed them, like Senjiro and stuff like that. But, you know, you look at the case of somebody like Seijin Suzuki, Mm -hmm. who famously brought kind of an abrasive, strange style to his genre films. And what happened? Uh, He got fired because of it. So, Shiro Honda... 
made this uh, one very successful movie and then kept getting assigned it. And not the sort of man who would stand up for himself, but even if he did stand up for himself, probably would have just been fired. So Ishiro Honda, to kind of like get into how he ended up that way, I mean, we can't do like a big psychoanalysis because like you said, there was one major biography written about him, but just reading kind of the historical details, like the fact that he grew up poor and the fact that um, he went to film school and then was drafted in the army right when he started his first job. And then when he got back, he was actually forced to start back at the bottom where when the people that he worked with at the beginning of the company, like Akira Kurosawa, were already moving on to directing stuff. And then because Ishiro Honda had the bad luck to be part of a platoon that rebelled, which he did not do, he was treated like garbage by the Japanese government and was drafted twice during the Chinese-Japanese War and then again during World War II. And he went back every time, even though that he would tell his friends and family, like... I just want to rip this up, but I'm just going to go and I'm going to be there. I will do what is asked of me, but I will do no more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and supposedly his humanist kind of perspective on life came from being in World War II, where he did such crazy things as he ran a brothel for a while, which the Japanese government actually denied ever happened that they installed brothels during World War II, but they did. And Ishiro Honda actually wrote an article about it in 1966, wow. about his experience of having to deal with these women who were put into forced servitude. There were essentially oh, no. slaves, yeah, comfort by the Japanese women. Yeah. comfort women, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the Japanese government. I mean, Ishiro Honda, his entire life, he struggled. Like his marriage to his wife was something that his wife's family did not want to happen because at, in Japanese society at that time was often arranged things that were done between the parents and was decided and accepted. But no, they fell in love, so they got together. And because he was poor, the family's like, we don't want this to happen. So they lived kind of poor for a long time until they had their first kid. Because I think we have maybe sort of an auteur bias on this show, there's a temptation to look at somebody's filmography or at least look at the movies that we watch and try to find like the the themes, the recurring like I think there's a lot of Ishiro Honda's uh, filmography. Well, because I was going to say that Three movies that I watched this week, mm-hmm. Farewell, Farewell Rebel, mm-hmm. Godzilla from 1954, and a movie that he didn't officially direct, but he was a, a heavy consultant on, credited as a consultant, and certainly had a big influence on Akira Kurosawa's dreams. Well, when we get to it, there's one specific sequence that's actually yes. Shiro Honda's. There, there are instances, particularly of his wartime experiences, mm-hmm. and just a sense of disillusionment mm. with with war that I think occur in these three movies. Well, when you're talking about like I think somatic concerns for Shiro Honda, it, the stuff that he loved the most was the idea of like an optimistic humanism, the world coming together to solve problems not through violence but through science mm-hmm. and you know moving forward to the next step without having to I don't know fight any monsters. <laughs> Another thing that surprised me about uh, Ishiro Honda, even though I've seen like half of Ishiro Honda's Mm. movies in my life, I've spent so much time with his filmography, but I think it was only this week that I started to realize that even though he specialized in wacky science fiction movies, he's a fairly down-to-earth filmmaker, Mm -hmm. you know? He wasn't somebody who gravitated towards the surreal, psychedelic side of Japanese monster movies. I think that he did in certain respects. Like, there's a quote in um, the book that we're actually going to talk a lot about, which is Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, written by Steve uh, Rifle and Ed Godzueski. I did my best. (laughs) Two Godzilla scholars. Yeah. Is that like, he would say stuff like, I just want to make the red shoes. 
So like that idea of surrealism, I think is something that attracted him, but he didn't go there because he was working within the studio system and he didn't want to step on any toes. But also in the Godzilla movies that he directed, mm-hmm. without getting into them too much, he was a more down to earth, like he took Godzilla very seriously. He wasn't into the the side of Godzilla who would like slide across the landscape. No, he didn't like any of that stuff. Or... Well, I mean, the film that we watch earliest in Ishiro Honda's career is Farewell Rabal, a film from 1954, which is kind of like um, Only Angels Have Wings, kind of mm. like 12 O'Clock High, about a, a platoon of... World War II uh, fighter pilots realizing that they're not going to win World War II because the Japanese government does not care about their human lives. Yeah, it's set in a base in New Guinea, and the main character is named Devil Wakabayashi. Mm-hmm. Devil is his nickname, uh, played by an actor named Ryo Ikebe, Ikebe who is in, I think, um, uh, Ozu's Early Spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, he leads the squad, and he's a very dedicated airman, a bit of a hard ass. Yeah, it's like... Uh, the beginning of the movie deals with one of the uh, soldiers like crashes plane and he's probably still alive and they want to go save him. It's like we can't do that because it's going to waste our men. We're only here to fight the American pilots. And he doesn't like all of his, the people under him who are carousing and boozing mm-hmm. at the local uh, the, the local house of ill repute. But things change when suddenly they shoot down an American pilot who's been creating a lot of trouble, played by the worst actor, <laughs> the worst actor, <laughs> American actor, uh, who reveals that you know the Japanese pilots are good, but the problem is that they have no defenses and that Japan doesn't care about the lives of their combatants because you know famously in japan kamikazes none of the japanese pilots had any parachutes right so there was no chance for them to survive if anything went wrong and if everybody's dying then no one can train and get better you can imagine how disillusioning the war would have been for for people like hondo Mm -hmm. or or many of the soldiers because i mean at least anecdotally there's there there was that sense that the japanese a lot of the soldiers had this had this feeling of what we fight to the death well i mean for ideals the emperor it was the idea of like we are divinely chosen our emperor is a supernatural figure and we're gonna win like i remember in akira kurosawa's biography they talk about that the emperor said if we lose or surrender i will commit suicide and i expect everyone in japan to commit suicide as well right and, and that then they happen. lost and he's like oh well i guess maybe uh divine it's different <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and ishiro honda wanted none of this ishiro honda like supposedly he would convince himself during world war ii that like oh the bullets aren't getting that close to me mm-hmm. like yeah, as long as i don't really fire back that much and i don't try to get into combat i can't get hurt he missed his boat at one point and the boat that he missed got torpedoed and everybody drowned on it. So like death was around every corner and was terrible. And you know, a movie like Farewell uh, Rabul, what's great about it is that you do get that like anger in it, a kind of anger that Shiro Honda wouldn't really revisit very much. Yeah. This like, this is wrong. Why are we doing this? Uh, I, re- I really like this movie. Like visually, mm-hmm. it's very beautiful. And there are a lot of really cool dogfight scenes by the Godzilla effects supervisor, Aji Tsuburaya. Yeah, because they had worked on Eagle in the Pacific, another mm-hmm. World War II movie about a general who didn't want to get into World War II. And the dogfight scenes, like actual stock footage of the war, will be interspliced with scenes mm-hmm. of, you know, little toy planes. <laughs> I mean, when we're talking about Honda, especially early on in his career, what he was very well known for was a documentary realism to what he was doing. Like when people talk about this or they talk about like Godzilla, there's like a almost like a newsreel feel to it. Yeah. So like... You know, in this movie, uh, the so in Farewell, when they're having dogfights, like 
you almost it's not like oh we need to use stock footage it's like no i want this to feel real yeah well the the movies godzilla and this one are both very beautiful but they're mm. not ostentatious no they're not yeah i mean honda when he worked at toho early on he did make a bunch of documentaries before he got to his first feature film mm-hmm. and it's only after godzilla that that opportunity completely disappeared what were his documentaries about i think they were about um pearl diving and they were about because his first feature film was the blue pearl mm-hmm. but i don't remember exactly because the titles are in japanese they have no English translation to my mind, but so, yeah. It's so frustrating to me that most of these aren't available. I, they, like, they exist. They by exist. The way. They're not lost. No, because uh, in the book, the two authors, they review all of these films, so they're somewhere. Mm. But it's just crazy to me that like Godzilla fandom ends with Godzilla. There's no interest in like discovering the rest of the person who made them all's filmography. Because that was kind of exciting to me about watching Farewell Rebel, yeah. because it has elements. It has some of mm-hmm. the seeds that you can see would blossom into Godzilla a few months later. But I would be fascinated to know like what happened after Godzilla like how did he explore and like you know the producer of the Godzilla film said that if Honda hadn't made Godzilla he would have probably become like a Naruse and just doing dramas all the time which to be honest Honda would have probably been more happy doing (laughs) yeah so he made Godzilla in 54 and this is the only Godzilla movie we're going to talk about on this podcast yeah we're not going to touch any of the other ones because we're going to do a whole episode next week because Godzilla this original one even though later movies try to like recapture the magic they don't even get close to this first Godzilla picture. Yeah, this is a great movie, mm-hmm. you know? It's one that, you know, rewatching it again this week, what you really get from the beginning is that, like, there's not even a protagonist. What Honda is just showing on screen is, like, this push and pull of bodies, these masses of people, like, wondering if their loved ones died on the boat or reacting to bodies washing up on the shore, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of the American cut, where you have Raymond Burr as a central figure in it. Right. In Honda's original version, there's more of a sense of danger because, uh, for a while, you don't have a figure to kind of focus on and follow through the story. And I would say around the 30-minute mark, they're kind comes into focus this love triangle mm-hmm. between a woman, her handsome friend, who's a maybe a prospective boyfriend, but also her fiancé, who she's known ever since she was a child. Snake Bliskin himself. Uh, Dr. Sarazawa, mm-hmm. the tortured uh, Frankenstein-like scientist. So the difference between this Godzilla movie and every one that would follow is that this one has an actual internal conflict that is human-based at its center. Because when people talk about the emotion of this film, they talk about Dr. Sarazawa having to make a choice about what he does with the weapon that he's created called the Oxygen Destroyer. (laughs) So you have all this Godzilla stuff going on, captured in like glimpses, and you kind of see him here or there, his head poking over a hill at one point. But it's not until later on when he finally attacks Tokyo that the whole like kind of horror and majesty of him uh, just appears on screen. I mean, we're not going through new ground when we say like, this is a metaphor for the nuclear bomb and what Japan was going through. But I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think movies are an interesting art form mm-hmm. is the fact that you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki get bombed in mm. 45 nine years later this movie emerges I mean I can't remember who said it but I heard somebody refer to the movies as they're like uh, the national dream beat yeah. or something like that and probably Martin Scorsese or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is what a society that has been bombed with nuclear weapons dreams after nine years well Honda actually didn't even like show any footage of Hiroshima or any of those actual nuclear blasts until I believe Frank Frankenstein Conquers the World or War of the Gargantuans. One of those ones dealt with it directly. Uh, Godzilla, the original Godzilla is also fascinating because like it mentions the It does, bombings, yeah. And in a very kind of nonchalant way. And 
I'm sure the movie probably played differently at the time than it does now, but when you watch it now and a character mentions something like, oh yeah, you know, we just barely escaped Nagasaki just offhandedly like it's a an everyday thing, it feels like a, a historic document. Mm-hmm. It feels like, <laughs> feels like, because, you know, when I think of those bombings, they feel like there's something almost unreal about them because they happened so long ago. They're like historic events. Um, As opposed to when you watch Batman versus Superman, you're like, this is like 9-11 all over well, again. Yeah, and then it hits me very, very deep in the heart. How do you keep living after that? Well, you do, because the next day comes and the next day comes and they have to figure it out, right? Yeah. And a way to deal with it seems to be in like movies like this. Like, why do audiences flock to it? Because it's an illustration of something that has touched all of them. And it's interesting, too, that this is, you know, this is the first Japanese giant monster movie, mm. or at least the first one after the bomb. Oh, uh, yeah. You're going to say King, King Kong, Kong Pierce and Ito. <laughs> That's right. A lost film. You knew it, too. You're like... <laughs> I can read your mind, Justin. You saw my mouth open. for so long. I can read your mind. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this is the first one after the bombs were dropped, and... It feels like this stepping stone towards, like, you you probably couldn't have had one of the 60s ones in the 50s where it's just, like, gleefully destroying mm. buildings. There has to be one to just put the idea out into the world. Like, mm-hmm. what if we had a giant monster destroying a cityscape? Well, the Godzilla in this film looks horrifying. He looks yeah. like a monster. And it's still a big guy in a suit and also a puppet head that looks nothing like the guy in the yeah. suit. The Godzilla series would never recapture... The, the magic of this one, the specific mm-hmm. magic of this one, because uh, Godzilla, like, there's not a lot that's joyous. Well, there's no personality to him. Yeah. He's just yeah, a monster, yeah. just walking, roaring, just moving forward. All with the no ones real af- goal. Yeah, yeah. All the ones after this Godzilla would be like chest thumping and, <laughs> yes. and hopping. <laughs> Much and to Ashiro Honda's horror. <laughs> doing fun stuff. But yeah, this one, he's just, he's just a brute. And it's filmed in black and white, so. Like, you're aware that it's a guy in a rubber suit? Docu- it's very darkly yeah, photographed. Documentary style is something weird, right? Because, like, when I think of that, I think of, like, handheld and, like, we're capturing, like, Cloverfield. Right. But that's not, when people usually use that term, that's not what they mean. They mean something that, like, has a kind of unexplainable realism to, the, to them. Like, they can kind of picture it. Because, like, every shot in this Godzilla film, Godzilla, like, all iconic. You could take a photo of it, put it on a wall, because it mm. looks so good. But because it's so kind of in your face, that's what it has, a documentary realism to it. And, like, this is a film that doesn't uh, shy away from showing people being crushed by buildings mm. or the one famous scene where, like, a woman is holding her child, saying, we're going to see uh, your father soon as they're, like, about to die. Mm. And this is the only Godzilla film, also, that deals directly with the effects of, like, after Godzilla leaves... People are still going to die because they're irradiated from Godzilla mm-hmm. walking by them, which they kind of ditched afterwards because Godzilla needed to play with kids now. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, it's something that, you know, Honda is tackling directly the idea of like, where do we go from here? Because it's not just Godzilla exists. It's how do we deal with them? Like we talked about Dr. Sarazawa. He created something that can kill Godzilla. But his one fear is like, what happens after we kill Godzilla, what do we do with the weapon that I created, which would completely eliminate like all water life? So Sarazawa uh, ends up killing himself at mm. the end, and he destroys all of his documentation so that not you know nobody can rebuild the oxygen destroyer, and even he cannot yeah. uh, cannot be coaxed into revealing its secrets ever again. Because like the emotional kind of punchline of this movie is Sarazawa killing himself, not letting anybody know. Even in this movie, the death of Godzilla is actually a little bit sad, where he's underwater and he's kind of like screaming and trying to get out as he's being killed by the oxygen destroyer. Yeah, well, Godzilla doesn't know what he's doing. No, he doesn't. He's just like a 
force that is moving forward. So when he gets murdered, the film even takes a moment to be like, look at this. This is not like a triumphant, like, yes, the monster's dead. It's like, oh, no, we're just killing a creature that doesn't know any better that humanity created themselves. Because mm-hmm. what's interesting about the movie is that, like, Godzilla is not, you know, you can imagine Japan's like, oh, yeah, a giant nuclear monster comes and attacks the U.S. and destroys them. And then we stop them. But that's not what the movie's about. It's about, like, how do we deal with the horrors that in some way, like, we didn't perpetrate, but, like, at the end, it came on to us. Yeah, and then at the end, there's the question, well, as long as there's still nuclear testing, will there be another Godzilla? Godzilla. Um, well, there is, and Godzilla raids again. <laughs> that's, that's right. And actually, he turns out to be a pretty good guy in the sequels. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's be honest. Uh, that's Godzilla Sr. in the first one. After that, it's all Godzilla Jr. <laughs> that's right. And he's a good man. Yeah, he's a good... Knows karate. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's great. So after uh, the original Godzilla, like we said, Ishiro Honda, mostly, he made a whole bunch of different movies, and he somehow avoided making the sequel, Godzilla Raids Again, because it came out the same year as Godzilla. That's a ma- That's madness. <laughs> that's insanity. And then they took a big, long break until King Kong versus Godzilla. But even before then, you know, Honda was still playing in the land of giant monsters and science fiction concepts because he made Rodan in 1956. Did he do Mothra? He did do yeah. Mothra in 1961. Uh, he, of course, did War of the Gargantuas, mm-hmm. Frankenstein. He did The uh, Mysterians, which was a big hit. I mean, Ishiro Honda's favorite films that he made were the science fiction ones that didn't have any really big monsters, like Gorath, which is about, like, the Earth trying to push out another big planet out of the way. Actually, Gorath has a giant walrus at one point that, like, destroys a tank. I revisited uh, Tango. Attack uh, of the Mushroom People. Uh, I sort of revisited it with like one eye. Like, yeah. I, I was falling asleep, you know, because it's pretty boring until the end. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Matango is, you know, it's Honda's most uh, negative picture. He actually came back to it after a break of a couple of years from movies. And it's like, he just wanted to put his all in it. And it's a story of terrible people who, you know, if you're looking at a cinema like metaphorically, it's like, okay. We're bad, and to continue to survive, we have to move to, like, a different level of badness. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe being a mushroom person isn't that bad. And if that's the only way to survive, maybe you have to do it. And even if you fight with all your might not to be a mushroom person, guess what? At the end, you're still a mushroom person. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it I mean, that's what it's think. about. Yep. You watched The Mysterians this week? I did watch The Mysterians, yeah. which, you know, theoretically, I'm like... Ah, let's give respect to these science fiction films that Honda made. He was passionate about it. The Mysterians was a huge hit when it came out. It doesn't need to have Godzilla in all of them. And then sitting there, I'm like, ugh, I wish Godzilla would show up. Godzilla, now there's a monster with personality, you <laughs> yes. know? I think that Honda, at a certain point in his career, when he started making all these science fiction films, he kind of got trapped in that one mode. Mm. And that, like, you're sitting there going, like, when's the Godzilla factory coming? Yeah. <laughs> so even something like the Mysterians or Gorass or Atragon or even Latitude, to zero. Mm-hmm. You're like waiting for those set pieces, which Honda's not very interested in. He's interested in like, you know, again, that kind of the UN coming together and saving the world. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Honda loved the idea of that kind of cooperation. The idea that war does not have to exist anymore because, you know, all the countries have one force that they have to team up against invading aliens. That's right. So we mentioned a little bit earlier that Honda later on in his career uh, teamed up with Akira Kurosawa. And they were best friends for mm. many years. I think... Well, they kind of broke off after he came back from World War II. But but Honda's, I think, last film as a director was Terror of Mechagodzilla yes. in 1975, which was also the last Godzilla movie for a decade. So Toho, not only was Ishiro Honda super respectful to them and he did whatever they wanted, he turned do- he turned jobs down. Like, there was some stuff that he's like, I don't want to make this. Mm. But at a 
certain point, Toho's just stopped giving him jobs. They didn't even officially fire him. They just stopped giving him movies to make because Toho would not hire employees who were all on one-year contracts. Now, somebody else who had kind of a rough 1970s was Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. He made uh, Dodeskaden in like 1970. He made Dursa Uzula in 75. And then finally... Uh, for the first time in a decade getting funding in Japan, although mm-hmm. also he got some funding from George Lucas, he yeah. got to make Kagamusha in 1980. Yeah, and so it came about because Ishiro Honda and Akira Kurosawa, they went to the same golf course. They started hanging out together, chit-chatting, and everybody who knew them were like, I don't understand how they're friends because they are complete opposites. Ishiro Honda never, ever lost his temper. Like, that's what he was known for. Akira Kurosawa lose his temper if a little breeze came across but together they were like a power team and they never fought with each other no they never fought with each other so when kurosawa was able to make kagamusha his his probably his biggest production Mm -hmm. at least in terms of budget ever at that point he brought in honda as his i'm not sure what the official job title yeah i think it's like assistant director but people on set said he was basically like co-director under Kurosawa. Right, because it's Kurosawa's vision. Mm-hmm. But but I think Kurosawa would say on the set, you were to treat us as if we are both directors. Mm. You're just, you were to give Honda as much respect as you give me. So like people would say that Kurosawa would like, set up a shot or get an idea, and he'd turn to Honda and go, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. And it, Honda would be critical, or he would praise him in like the classic Honda way, and they just con- were able to continue working like that from Kagamusha to, I don't have the exact uh, uh, list of movies in Ran, front of me. Ran, and, yeah. Uh, Dreams, Dreams, which we both watched. And Rhapsody in August after that. And then there was one more. Uh, Matadayo after- was the last yeah. one. And the, their skills complemented each other. Whenever Akira Kurosawa would get angry or upset, Honda would be the conciliatory force. Mm-hmm. Uh, Honda was... Uh, you know, skilled in special effects. He did a lot of scenes of, you know, wrangling, like in Kagamusha, a lot of the big, like, battle scenes, battle scenes crowd yeah. scenes. He he wrangled. I'm not sure how much this is documented. I'm not sure how much mm. proof there is of it, but there are scenes that he is said to have basically directed. Yeah, there's some scenes where, like, Akira Kurosawa was either so angry or he was sick, and Honda just kind of, like, took over. Yeah. I mean, there's some anecdotes we missed about Honda and Kurosawa, like the fact that at one point in time, it was rumored that Honda was going to direct Throne of Blood mm. because uh, Kurosawa was doing like his independent production. He wanted to give a bunch of projects to a bunch of people. There's also the fact that Honda, early on in Kurosawa's career, directed all the neorealist scenes in Stray Dog, wow. the one where Mifune is like, looking yeah, for yeah, his yeah. gun. Everyone remembers the montage at the beginning of that movie. Yeah. And Kurosawa was very open. He's like, oh, Honda directed all that. Like He's the one who put that all together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in 1990, there is Akira Kurosawa's Dreams on which Honda is credited in the opening credits as creative consultant. This is a film that is, I think it's uh, six or seven vignettes, uh, allegedly based on dreams that Kurosawa had. And they're all sort of surreal and they get increasingly apocalyptic as they go along. You know, the movie is actually probably best remembered today for the fact that Martin Scorsese plays Vincent Van Gogh in that scene. Do you know that Martin Scorsese, there's a photo of him and Honda that he took on set I that Scorsese asked for it and he said, you're really the only reason I came here to take this photo. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. And there's a segment where it's a man walks through a tunnel and he reaches the other side and then suddenly a dead soldier comes to see him and he's like, all right, I'm ready, commander. What do you want me to do? And the, so- and the soldier is like, oh, you're actually dead. 
And then they have an argument about the fact that like, oh, but I can't be dead. I have this memory of, you know, I went to visit my family. And then the Honda proxy, because yeah. this is obviously something that Honda told Kurosawa, because Kurosawa never went to the Second World War. <laughs> right, right. And the story ends up being that this man who, you know, this this ex-general who is mm. coming back from the war after being in a POW camp. Which Honda was as well. Yeah. He has sent this soldier and also the whole the whole uh, battalion into this unwinnable battle mm-hmm. and they've all died and now they're ghosts their spirits are roaming the countryside unaware that they're dead and so finally at the end of the segment the whole squadron sort of comes up and they all have these ghastly green faces mm-hmm. and they they salute him basically and and you know it put me in mind of farewell rabul mm-hmm. which is also about these soldiers this this general i don't i can't remember if he's a general but mm-hmm. this squadron leader who is like leading his soldiers into unwinnable wars basically yeah and it's about the honda proxy having to face that and yeah. like how do you tell these these people that they're dead because that's what the whole like scene is about Mm. and like you have to send them back you're Mm. like you got to go back you're dead you can't be here and i'm the one who has to continue living with the guilt that i survived somehow there are other segments in dreams that certainly if honda didn't assistant direct them they at least show his influence in particular the famous mount fuji in red Mm. scene where it begins with this nuclear meltdown uh, taking place at Mount Fuji and there's this uh, kind of stunning surreal optical effect of Mount mm. Fuji you know done lit, by ILM yeah like <laughs> lit up in red with pe- with crowds of people running from it and then the short takes a well it takes a dreamlike mm-hmm. turn where, where, pe- <laughs> Wink. Well, where people are people have run away from the from Mount Fuji and they're at a beach they're at the water but essentially the radiation has followed them there yeah, and they talk about all the different kinds of gases and what it's going to do to them and it's such a it's such a strange scene it's sort of like it sort of like fizzles out mm-hmm. i i think it's a beautiful movie but it's like a little more static than the usual mm. kurosawa film yeah kurosawa was famous that like he would always shoot with like three cameras mm. and you can kind of get the sense of that but you also get like even a more calmness than his normal pictures like you're, you're trapped in this dream that's just kind of going. There's no real narrative thrust to it. You're yeah. not sure where it's going. It may just end at any time yeah. before another one starts. Yeah, they're little mood pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's that other one, that one where it's the hikers on the, yeah, snowy, the, s- the snowy mountain, which also is like, it doesn't have a particular narrative and mm. it, it moves at the pace of a dream. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love the fact that Honda got the chance to, I assume, feel creatively fulfilled working on these final projects. Well, in that Honda biography, they interview his son, and he suggests that this was actually the happiest part of Honda's career. Because for the first time in a long time, he was working on movies that he felt proud of and that he wanted to make, and he was working under his best friend, Mm -hmm. uh, an artist that he really believed in. When Honda shockingly passed away very quickly and they pulled an Ikiru on him and they didn't actually tell him what he had, they were like, oh, you know, it's not that bad when he really had like late stage cancer. Mm -hmm. And then he passed away kind of suddenly. Kurosawa didn't direct any movies after that. Like he just couldn't do it without his like best pal. I mean, they direct, they they worked together on like five movies in a really short period of time for people that were like in their late seventies, early eighties. Yeah. And it was an amazing run of films. (laughs) An amazing run of films. I mean, you know, Honda, I know a lot of people would be like, well, I don't know if he was a great director. Uh, Old Will Slaw would would say that. Yeah. on an early episode but yeah he's obviously a great director that was just not given the opportunities that he needed to make great films all the time and 
what he was able to do for those late Kurosawa movies, mm-hmm. those movies, shows that he still had it. Well, those movies wouldn't exist in the form mm-hmm. that we have them if it weren't for Honda. And the other thing is that we don't even have any of Honda's non-Godzilla films. So yeah. it's tough to do any kind of like critical overlook of his films when all we have is like Terror of Mechagodzilla, which is great. <laughs> it's <laughs> a beautiful it's, film. Yeah. And we'll talk about it next week. But <sighs> man, it's just so frustrating because like when I read about his life and he was vocal, like he criticized his films he would say that he would meet with uh Subaraya and they talk about like what would you give like this movie out of 100 I think it was like a 60 I think we can do better next time mm-hmm. but instead he would be given these like what is he gonna do with um I don't know invasion of the astro monsters <laughs> like there's no way out of that he's gonna work with Nick Adams that's right what Nick an Adams. Honor. hey they were great friends we'll yeah. talk about it next week so Ishiro Honda I don't know. He deserves more of your respect, I would say, beyond just Godzilla. Great yep. filmmaker. Okay, so you can send us letters at pornsinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com, but I'm going to make a note. We want your letters for next week. Only Godzilla-related questions. <laughs> That's it. If it's not Godzilla, don't send it. So it could be like, who would win in a fight between Godzilla and Spider-Man? Or, you know what, you can send your questions, but we'll just, if they're not Godzilla, we'll read them on a future episode. We'll read them on a future episode. But if you want your question read, Godzilla-related questions. questions. (laughs) Or Godzilla memories, even, that then leads to a question that we can discuss. Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of Godzilla stuff. Speaking of Godzilla, on our Patreon this week, we're talking about Godzilla's redheaded stepchild. (laughs) Gamera. Gamera, the giant flying turtle monster friend of all children and <laughs> guardian of the universe godzilla's biggest rival in the 60s we also mentioned a bunch of other giant monster movies that came out around uh, that time and i mentioned some of our favorites so if you want to check that out check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club five dollars a month gets you that episode and all the episodes that came before that well folks you know what's coming next week it's episode number 200 <sighs> can you had... believe we're, we're gonna hit 200 and, episodes and look we're still here <laughs> yep we are we're still Just here like Shiro Honda cranking out those godzillas we're still still here wherever it is we are and i think 200 episodes from now i want to be famous 200 episodes because i think you know by two by episode 400 we really should be more famous so that's like 1 a.m public access show yeah no i want to host the canadian screen (laughs) the canadian screen awards so 200 episodes from now will and why would there be two white guys hosting the canadian screen award can we present one award yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that's not too much to ask. <laughs> Just one award. You, like, know, you know what? We are more beloved than lots of people who present <laughs> at that show. So, Godzilla next week, looking forward to it. So, until then, my name is Joseph Glue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Will, you saw one of the most anticipated films of the season in theaters. By the season, you mean like the week. Yes. I'm, I mean, and by anticipated, I mean no one wanted to see it. And did it tank at the box office? It didn't do that well. Okay. Did, did it open number one? It opened uh, number two behind Bad Boys. <laughs> three. Which I, I mean, also saw. Hey, you saw Bad Boys 3. How was that? Uh, three stars out of five, Letterboxd. Yeah. yeah. And you said that uh, you had more fun than Bad Boys 2, which is a noxious experience. Yeah. So this is the thing. When Bad Boys 3 came out, I remember us talking about it. We mm. were like, uh, it's not going to be the same without Michael Bay. Yeah. But then as I'm watching Bad Boys 3, I realize I don't like Michael Bay. <laughs> you I, don't like Michael this Bay. This is way more watchable than fucking Bad Boys 2 was. Yeah, it is. Sure, it's by two anonymous guys that yeah. would probably make nothing else after this. But, but, but like, I would like a movie that doesn't like hurt me physically while I'm watching it. <laughs> but is it... 
you know, movies like any yard is just supposed to make you feel. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, when Amos Vogel wrote Film as a Subversive Art, he was talking about Bad Boys 2. You know what? I bet you he would probably put Bad Boys 2 if he was writing Film as a Subversive Art. Ugh, can't say it now. Yeah, well, we'll never know because he's dead. <laughs> Rest in peace. Anyway, I did see Doolittle yesterday. <gasps> Whoa, from the director of the auteur of... Um... Uh, Syriana. Syriana, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the uh, one that's not Michael Clayton. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's really not from him because he got fired before the movie was finished, and he was replaced by uh, some guy. Did you the guy uh, Wrath of the Titans? No, he that got director. What that director? That he did So I was reading Wikipedia today. Yeah, and it said that. They they hired him to do reshoots when it became clear that the comedy elements weren't working as well as they should. Well, did you hear that like um, a visual effects coordinator like did a Reddit thread where he yeah. talked about his experiences where like the director would ask for something and then they do it and he'd be like, why'd you do this? You fucking like idiots. And they started recording the conversations that they had with the director. Oh my God. So when like, and it came to a tipping point where he's like, I don't want that duck in the scene. Why is the duck in the scene? Then he saw the scene later on. He's like, where's the duck? And they actually went to their suit and they're like, listen, like he lied. And that's when he essentially got the boot. So Doolittle is bad. Yes. And it's, it like actually feels unfinished. <laughs> like it's, I'm not used to Whoa, seeing Whoa, uh, I saw all those celebrity posters though with all the stars in the movie. John Cena as a bear. Isn't there something just kind of insulting about the fact that it comes out in January? Oh yeah, the, the studio doesn't care at all about it. But but like this movie, every scene, like it looks like it's shot with that Lars von Trier Automavision camera. Where it, 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 it's like, it's, it's like, the director of the boss of it all yeah, made it. Yeah, it's like, it's like every scene, it's like he was rolling three cameras simultaneously and then the editor was just like uh uh cut to this camera and then this camera and then this camera and then this one and this one like it's a chaotic visual experience and also it's 102 minutes long and i bet 40 minutes was cut out of it it's 102 minutes not even two hours not that is hours. unbelievable because every plot point is just carelessly rushed through <laughs> and and also it's clearly one of those movies where like they added a ton of jokes in post-production oh, so like off screen someone yeah, saying something yeah, like that Patton Oswalt routine <laughs> yeah so they're like constantly in this movie there are just scenes where the where like there will be a dramatic moment that's happening and then it'll cut over to like a monkey who says um so that just happened <laughs> And I don't think that was actually a joke in the movie, but it was yeah, like, yeah. it's that level of joke. <laughs> so, but you didn't actually get to the heart of the matter. And by heart, I mean Robert Downey Jr. He's fucking terrible. <laughs> so Robert Downey Jr., can he ever act again? No, but you know what? He's on the wagon. Yeah. Uh, he's he's more interested in making money these days. <laughs> Does he, doesn't he have enough money? Making money is part of his recovery, mm. and I respect that. What was the other film, like the one he made between all the Iron Mans and stuff like that? The Judge. That? The Judge. Yeah, that's right. Tiff gala opening film and i feel like that was the movie its failure perhaps broke him forever after that he was probably like all right i'm just not gonna do real movies anymore oh, you God. fuckers if you don't yeah, want that yeah. this is what i'm gonna give you do little and you know the failure of this movie reminds me of the fa how much does this movie cost 175 million 175 million dollars yeah and, and it looks like dog shit <laughs> some of the worst special effects i've ever seen so this is like 
you know, Pictures of the Revolution, the Mark Harris book. Yeah. The linchpin is Richard Fleischer's Doolittle. And in that book, it's about the five Best Picture nominees that year. So Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate. I can't believe blah, that blah, Dr. Doolittle was nominated for Best Picture. Dr. Doolittle was nominated for Best Picture because the studio basically said to all their employees, listen. Oh, yeah. We're going to fire you if you don't vote for there it. There will be layoffs. So you better vote for this movie. <laughs> hey, what if suddenly the Oscars make an announcement? They're like, most popular films coming back. Look what's nominated. Dr. Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Little. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the difference between that is like, I guess... Do people like the original Doctor? There has to be people. Well, I'm sure there are some people who watched it when they were kids yeah. who like it. But... Drunken Richard Burton just kind of like mumbling uh, through all his Rex songs. Rex Harrison's. Rex Harrison, yeah. Uh, shame on you. <laughs> I mean, they're both drunk. Sorry, my mistake. I saw the original Doctor Doolittle as a kid, and mm. it was certainly never a favorite of mine. <laughs> I think it's a bad movie. And yet, you compare it to the new Doolittle, and it's like... <laughs> like a day. masterpiece. Because bad movies were better back then. <laughs> <laughs> they had Richard Fleischer, like a director yeah, who could actually a great director. director yeah. <laughs> and, you know, uh, who directed the Eddie Murphy Doolittle, which I had completely forgotten oh, about. I don't know who directed that. But it did have a, it had a sequel as well. That's right. Which Eddie Murphy reappeared in. Yeah. So it was enough of a success to like bring him back and it's completely like just gone from my memory. Yeah, they should, they should have just got Eddie Murphy back. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, like, like Shaft, the new one where he's like handed the I, baton to I, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. I like that in this new Dr. Doolittle they went back to the source. So it's based on the actual books as if anybody cares. cares yeah <laughs> it's like uh what is it bram stoker's dracula <laughs> yeah yeah i mean with dr doolittle all the people know, like it's a property that nobody gives a shit about it's just like oh yeah like he talks to animals yeah, who cares yeah. like who's it for yeah oh you think kids are like oh oscar isaacs is doing the voice of like i don't know what voice he does yeah there's like, rami malik's in there and uh, <laughs> yeah uh, oh god <laughs> what a nightmare that is it's an aw- it's an awful film <laughs> and do you think it'll be a death snail to anything because i don't think it'll be a death snail to uh, i mean in a more just world it mm. would be but it definitely fit like it's the sort of movie it feels like the ultimate example of a kind of movie that has been made a lot lately which are these like blockbusters that have been destroyed in post-production well what's weird about it is that like other films that cost this much money it feels like there would be tons of press about it and dr doolittle there's nothing yeah that's uh, do you right. think maybe they like made a good strategy like put it out in january so like nobody cares yeah like you know when john carter came out all people could write about is that john carter was a giant flop and it cost this much amount of money yeah that's interesting it is sort of like damage control <laughs> yeah so i wonder if it's i don't know who's in control and is doing this i mean you know once disney owns all theaters like <laughs> there'll be no negative press yeah. it'll be like china there's nothing <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. entire way through but- so but I do think that uh, this new Doolittle, it's like, you know, there are movies like Suicide Squad or Justice League or even The Rise of Skywalker where they like, like the scars of mm-hmm. the post-production process are very evident in them. And this just feels like the biggest example of that. But I feel like that's always existed, but maybe only recently are we becoming aware of it. I mean, these these examples I just listed off, like Justice League in particular. Oh, God. I mean, I mean that is a disaster zone. <laughs> but like you hear that stuff happens all the time, but you just don't hear about well, it. Well, Rogue One looks pretty seamless. Mm-hmm. That was another movie. You would know, but like a production. whole director, yeah, came in and like reshot it all. Yeah. Or, you know what, on the other hand, I think that now you can't make, like, mid-budget films that'll make a little bit of money. It has to be, like, the biggest blockbuster ever. Yeah. And because it's the biggest blockbuster ever, everyone's doubting themselves, so... 
you know, it's like, we can't make any mistakes. So instead it's like, oh my God, my child's going to run this marathon and I don't want anything to go. So let's chop his legs off. Yeah. Doolittle definitely feels like a movie where they're definitely afraid that the audience will be bored for a second (laughs) at any time. Because there is always, it's an assault of experience. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, what they're worried about is that like, if it fails and we just let it go on, does it look worse if we tried to fix it? Because, like, you rarely hear the story of, like, ah, yes, we brought in a new director and he saved the movie. Like, that never happens, does it? No, it never seems to. <laughs> no, but they keep doing it. Except for Rogue One, I guess, which yeah. I didn't even like. But, nah, but, nah, but, me but, neither. But obviously it it's worked fine. out for, for the people who liked it. Yeah. 